If you would, join me in your copies of God's Word. We'll be in the book of Romans, looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Romans 5, 1 through 5. I'll just say before we get into His Word, my hope and prayer would be that by the end of this sermon that if there was any hesitation in anyone as we sing those lines of that song, that it's on Christ, that He's the rock on which we stand, that He's our hope, that He's our plea, my prayer would be that by the end of this sermon, that you would not have any doubt lacking that. I think really what Paul is going to be getting at this morning, in fact, I think the whole of chapters 5 and 6 of his letter to the church at Rome really emphasizes and emphasizes and emphasizes that the believer in Christ Jesus should have no doubt or worry of their final standing place with God the Father for what Christ has done. Romans 5, 1 through 5, if you would join me in prayer and then we'll dig into his word. Let's pray. Almighty God, gracious Father, Lord, we pray this morning that as we look into your word that you would show us much of yourself. We pray that you would grant us eyes to see, that you would enable our ears to listen, to not just hear it, but to listen and obey and receive. Father, and for even the most hardened of hearts in the room, Lord, that you would soften them this morning. Father, we pray that you would help us to hear the Word of God in its fullness this morning as it's proclaimed. Father, we pray that for unbelievers, for unregenerate persons who may be here today, Father, that they would be made certain of a couple of things. That first... That in and of themselves, Lord, that peace and access and hope are things that they will not find in this world in and of themselves. And that secondly, Lord, that they would know that it is in Christ and Christ alone that they can find it. And that He offers it freely to those whom He's justified. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here this morning, for your church, Lord, that we would be encouraged, that we would be built up, that as we leave this place, that we would feel on fire, as Jeremiah speaks about, Lord, that we could not but speak of the things that we see and hear in your word this morning with those around us. Father, I know that we have likely several brothers and sisters here, Lord, who though in Christ, struggle. Struggle with not feeling at peace. Struggle with feeling as though you are far off. Struggle with feeling not very hopeful from day to day. Lord, I pray for that brother or for that sister this morning that you would encourage them, that you would build them up, that you would strengthen their resolves and their spirits by your grace and mercy. That they would look to Christ, the author and the perfecter, and not to themselves. Father, we pray that through the preaching of your word this morning, that your body would be edified, 
that your kingdom would be furthered, and that King Jesus would be glorified. We pray this in His name. Amen. Romans 5, 1-5, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that this is, in fact, God's inerrant, infallible Word. Hear it now. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Paul begins this portion of his letter as he does so often throughout his writings. He begins it with a word which we may be tempted to just fly right past, a little word called therefore. This therefore serves an extremely helpful function throughout Paul's letters. What Paul is essentially doing is he's holding up a blinking neon sign saying, hold up a minute. Before you just go right on, stop and think back on what I have just said. It calls the reader's attention. It forces us to place our text where we've just read in its proper, wider context. As I had an old minister used to tell me back in high school, just a good Bible study tip whenever you see a therefore, ask, what is it there for? And so we have to ask ourselves that question this morning. What is Paul pointing us back to? What is Paul pointing us back to? Paul, after spending three whole chapters making it abundantly clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. After three chapters of making abundantly clear that there's not a soul on this earth that stands innocent before their Creator... Paul, in the latter part of chapter 3, and in the entirety of chapter 4, gives us, to just put it simply, the gospel. He gives us this amazing, beautiful gospel truth that if we have been justified, if we have been declared just, it has been by faith and faith alone. And so now, here in our passage today, what Paul does is he springboards from that truth. He begins the passage assuming that you've already read what's come before it. Assuming that you're already on the same page, Christian. That if you're in Christ, that you are just. And so he tells us. He tells us right at the beginning of our passage this morning. Saying, since we have been justified. And then he gives us everything else. And I want us to pause for just a moment because I was tempted to not go any further than that. I mean, there's a whole series of sermons that we could have just on that beautiful gospel truth that Paul doesn't say we're looking forward to being justified. Paul doesn't say we're working towards justification, does he? He says we have been justified. You don't have to love English class. You don't have to be a grammar Nazi to know that that is past tense. You have been justified. It's accomplished. It is done. 
Paul says it's something that has already happened. Not something we're looking forward to. Not something we're working towards. There is no prolonged wait. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, God has already past tense, once and for all time, never needed to be done again, declared righteous. And we say, praise be to God, Paul. And yet he continues. That's just his opening sentence. Because what Paul has for us this morning is he's going to tell us it gets even better. It gets even better because this justification, as amazing as it is, as praiseworthy as it is, Paul tells us this morning that it comes with perks. Did you know that? That this justification comes with benefits. On top of the justification that Christ has declared over you, there are benefits accompanying that justification, or as I like to think of them, extra little joys of justification that come along with it. Paul gives us this morning three. What are these joys of justification, these benefits accompanying this already finished work that Christ has given? Paul tells us it is peace, access, and hope. That if you have been justified, you have been given peace with God, access to God, and hope in God. And so let's look a little bit closer at each of those. Paul tells us that the first benefit accompanying, that the first joy of justification is peace. Paul writes, almost as though it weren't a big deal if you're not careful as you're reading through it, this amazing truth that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're forced to ask, what is peace? What is peace? I'm a simple person. Usually as I'm trying to think about words, definitions, I like to think of what's the opposite. The opposite of peace is, is war. It's, it's conflict. It's separation. Peace is the opposite of war. It is tranquility. It's security. It's safety. And Paul tells you, after everything he's written in the first three chapters of Romans, this is a mind-blowing truth to come to. That you... You who it's true of everything that was said Romans 1-3, through 3, you now have peace with God. We need to understand how big of a deal this is. Our natural state is not one of peace with God. Our natural state, by nature, by default, we are at war with God. And what's more, not only are we at war with God, but we see throughout His Word that He is actively at war with us. Paul will tell us in other places of Scripture, such as the book of Ephesians, that in fact, we are born, and I know this is so contrary to popular talking points that we're all children of God. That's not what Paul says. We are born enemies of God, at war with God. Now, most people won't go that far. You know, even, I've got friends and acquaintances and even family members who would describe themselves as atheists or agnostics, and they wouldn't go as far as to say they're at war with God. You know, normally they would say something to the effect of they're just kind of indifferent. But is that the reality? Were we just indifferent? Were we just passive third parties? That's not what Paul says. By nature, we weren't just people looking on to a war. We weren't just reading about it, hearing about it. We were actively engaged against the Lord. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that by nature, we are estranged we are children of wrath. 
not just impartial third parties, not just innocent bystanders to this cosmic conflict between God and devil, good and evil. We ourselves were found to be enemies. We were rebels. We were rebels who had committed cosmic treason against the God King of the universe. And, and if you think this morning, that, that sounds a little harsh. Surely that's an overstatement. You'd be wrong. Because if you had been reading through Romans, there's no way you follow Paul's reasoning in the first couple of chapters and get to this and come away saying that we should be at peace with God. If you've been reading through his letter, I think you would understand. I think you would agree. Paul has spent three chapters making it clear that we don't deserve peace. We deserve war. We don't deserve tranquility. We deserve wrath. In chapter 1, you, you can keep your finger here in chapter 5, and we'll just get a, a brief overview of these first couple of chapters to establish Paul's argument. In chapter 1, Paul focuses attention on what are called Gentiles. That, that's every single one of us in this room. Unless there's someone here of Jewish ancestry that I'm unaware of. Every single one of us are Gentiles by birth. And Paul focuses attention there in chapter 1 on us. And he says that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, against all those who would actively or passively try to suppress the truth. He's talking about those who would either deny God's existence altogether or who have turned and exchanged the glory of the true God for what Paul calls idols. And that doesn't have to be little wooden statues. I think more often than not, that's the person you see in the mirror. And Paul says that for those who have done this, what is the result? It is that God gives them up. God takes a step back and says, you want your own gods? Fine, have at it. Nothing more to do with you. And then that they receive the due penalty for their error. In chapter 2, just in case the Jews reading this begin to get a little haughty, he turns his attention to them, to God's people. I think it's applicable to the church in many ways. We are God's people. And he says that we should not presume either. As though we might escape this judgment. He says that we're not to presume upon his kindness and forbearance as though it gives us some excuse. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, don't have the mindset that just because you've been sinning and nothing bad has happened to you, that that means that God approves it. Paul says it's supposed to do the opposite. God has been gracious and merciful so that you would turn away from it. And he says that for those who are self-seeking, for those who don't obey the truth, that God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter how much money's in your bank account. It doesn't matter if you're in church, out of church, where you come from. God will show no partiality. He is not a man that he should lie. He is not an earthly judge who can be bribed. God is righteous, as we prayed earlier. And that righteousness is unchanging. It is unfaltering, unwavering. He tells us there in chapter 2 that our outward religiosity has zero value. If it's not backed by inward changed hearts and outward changed actions. And then just in case, in classic Paul fashion, in case we weren't clear, he spends the first half of chapter 3 making it clear. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one does good. Not anyone. No one does good in the eyes of God. So what does that mean for us this morning as we come to chapter 5? If Paul has said for that those who sin, the wages will be death, and then he tells us that that's true of all of us, 
The last thing that we expect as we come to chapter 5 is for Paul to say that we have peace. We would expect for Paul to say that we're at war. That we should be scared, but he doesn't say that. He says that we have peace. Which causes us to, to immediately go, Paul, how? how? How do I have peace with this righteous, fearsome God? How have I been brought out of war and into a place of peace and tranquility with this holy, fearsome being? Paul tells us we have been given this peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's truth this morning is that you on your own could never bring about this peace. No one on this earth could broker that sort of arrangement. Jesus was and is, is the only one who can bring people to peace with God the Father. We can only gain peace through the peacemaker, Jesus Christ, who is himself the Prince of Peace. And what did this Christ do? What did Jesus do to bring you to peace with God? Consider it. Christ, who had always been at perfect peace with the Father. From eternity past, in perfect tranquility, in perfect harmony, in perfect peace with God the Father and God the Spirit. Comes to earth and drinks his wrath for you. The hostility that you and I deserved. The wrath that you and I deserve. The judgment that you and I deserve for our rebellion. Christ takes it on Himself. Do you see the the poetry and the beauty? Christ who is at peace puts Himself at enmity. So that we may be brought to peace with God. And the greater truth here, I think it just gets even better is that if Christ has initiated the peace, if Christ has earned this peace, then He guarantees this peace. He is the secure. He is the guarantor. Unlike the peace treaties of this earth with come and go, which can be altered or done away with, this peace, brother and sister, is secure. It is permanent. It is lasting. There's nothing you can do to cause it to be ripped up. This peace treaty has been signed with the blood of Christ Himself. We see in John chapter 14 that Jesus in His final days when He was preparing to die that He brought all of His disciples to Himself in an upper room. This is normally the passage we reflect on when we take the Lord's Supper. But what I want us to reflect on now is that there's a real sense here in the upper room in John 14, 27 in which Jesus is giving his last will and testament. And see, Christ, he he didn't have any cars or or houses or boats even to leave to his disciples. He had no gold or silver that he could pass on. But he left something with them far better. Christ said to his frightened disciples, who were unsure of the future, almost certain that their lives would be on the line any day now, Christ says to them in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be afraid. Brothers, sisters, sometimes we don't feel this. That's just the reality. Sometimes we don't feel like we're at peace. Especially not with God. We sin in thought or in word or in deed. And and sometimes so much so that we feel that at any moment, certainly, God is ready to rip this treaty in half. 
We, we convince ourselves, certainly, at any moment he'll say, no more, I'm done. We look at ourselves in the mirror and sometimes we see only a filthy sinner looking back. But this is the encouragement that we're given here in God's Word. That if you are Christ, then when God looks at you, He sees nothing more and nothing less than the perfect, complete, steadfast righteousness of Christ. A righteousness which can be neither be lessened nor increased, which is perfect and permanent. Jesus gave it to His disciples then, and He guarantees it to each of you who are in Christ in this room this morning. This is the first joy of justification that the Apostle brings to our attention. The first benefit accompanying it. The second is access. Paul tells us in verse 2 that through Him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So again we ask, what is access? Access is liberty and ability to enter into a place or to approach a person. It's the freedom to go to someone freely. You know, it's not the picture of a VIP room that's only for certain special persons. That you're, you're seeing the sign that says you're not allowed. Access is the picture of a child coming to his parents in the middle of the night. There's access. It's the liberty and the ability to enter a place or to approach a person. And here's what's crazy. In this context, Paul says you have that with God. Yet again, our natural state is not one of access. It is not one of access. God is creator. God is infinite, immortal, transcendent, holy. He is the one who dwells in unapproachable light. And on the other hand, we find ourselves creatures, finite, mortal. Aside from God's initiation and intention, we wouldn't be able to access the Almighty anyway, even if we were perfect. You understand this? It's not just sin in the way. Even in the garden, it was gracious, merciful condescension for God to speak with Adam in the first place. And yet, sin we did. Just consider the efforts of the Tower of Babel and how that worked out for them. We can't get to God on our own. But you add to that the fall, original sin, total depravity, that we're not innocent. And we begin to see how big of a deal this is that Paul almost just says, so we're tempted to just read right past it. You have access to God. God originally gave this to mankind. Though not natural to us in and of ourselves, God did condescend. God did show mercy. God did show grace to Adam and Eve in the garden. So that they could literally walk with God. It's mind-blowing. But this access, it was lost. They took of the fruit and, and they ate. And the immediate result we see there in Genesis 3 is that no longer do they walk with God, they flee from Him. They run and they hide. God takes action now and He not only removes them from the garden, which is effectively removing His access, but God even places angels at the edge of the garden with flaming swords, completely barring access you would think forever. For thousands of years, only certain select men could enter access to God. 
It was only one man, Moses, that God gave access early in Israel's history. Remember, only Moses was allowed to come up the mountain of the Lord. To everyone else, they were warned, if they so much just touched it, they would fall dead. For all of Israel's history, the tabernacle and the temple stood as not only a place of access, a a picture of access where people could come and be close to God, but it also stood as the opposite for the vast majority of humanity. They were walled off, closed off by the veil. You and I could not have entered the Holy of Holies. A thick wall separated men from God in this place called the Holy of Holies where only one man, the chief priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement could enter in. And even he had to go through extensive purification rites. Even he, they tied a bell, according to Jewish tradition. They would have to tie a bell and a rope to the chief priest when he entered in the Holy of Holies. Because there was a good chance he would be struck dead. And as he fell, they would hear the bell and be able to pull him out without them having to go in either. See, this isn't access. This is the opposite. This is separation. But Paul tells us that now through him, that is in Jesus, you and I have something that even the chief priests did not. You cannot gain access to God yourself. You can't buy your way into it like a country club. You can't earn your way through good deeds any more than you could construct a tower to get there. Jesus tells us himself, contrary to popular belief, there are not many roads to heaven. He is the way, the truth, the life, and he's the only way to the Father. What has he done to gain you this access, Christian? Consider yet again the beautiful Picture of the gospel of what Christ has done to gain you this access. Christ, who had always had access to the Father, who had always been one with God in perfect fellowship, He departed heaven willingly to come to earth. He took the punishment on Himself as one who was forsaken by God. Now He is the way maker. Now through Christ, you have been given access to God. Do you see? Christ leaves His access to gain you access. And he has done it so much so that now it's not just you can enter the Holy of Holies once a year terrified. Paul says, no, brother, sister, you can now come into his throne room itself, the Holy of Holies itself, and to not do so in fear. But as the author of Hebrews tells us, that now you can do so with boldness, with confidence, something even the high priest could not say. Sometimes, whether we know this or not, though, the reality yet again is that we don't feel it. How often do we open our words and it feels cold? How often do we go to God in prayer and even though we know theologically that he's listening, we feel distant. Sometimes we feel maybe like we're out of range. But the beautiful truth here this morning, brother and sister, is that the veil has been torn. The angels' flaming swords have been doused with the blood of Jesus. And now we need not worry about entering the Holy of Holies. Because the Holy of Holies, the Holy One Himself has entered you. Jesus has given us peace. Jesus has given us access. But there's yet a third hope we look at this morning in verses 2-5. through Paul tells us it's hope. Christ has secured for us hope. I think of all the three this morning, this is the one that is most often most easily misunderstood. Most often, I think, when we use the word hope, we use it almost as synonymous with wishful thinking. 
No, I hope, I hope they get better. I hope I get that promotion. I hope it all works out. It's really just like, we say it like it's a shot in the dark. This is my wishful thinking. But this is not biblically what the word means at all. Biblically, hope is a certainty. Hope is an anchor for the soul. It's an assurance. It's an absolute certainty that God will do as he said he will do. It's a type of hope that Paul says here that's not even shaken by suffering or circumstance. And yet again, we're immediately conflicted with how. This is not our natural state. We were born having no hope. No hope of a life well lived or of a death with any meaning at all. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we should remember remember that at one time we were Gentiles in the flesh. We were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. He tells us remember that. That you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant to promise having no hope without God in this world. And we need to understand absolutely what a hopeless state it is to be without God in this world. And so how is it, Paul? How how is it that we have hope? What hope could I have? Sinner, enemy. Paul tells us this morning, God offers to you this morning, that true, that lasting hope is only gained in and through one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And how has he secured this hope for you, Christian? Christ, yet again. I hope you see the beauty here. Christ subjected himself to a seemingly hopeless situation. A hopeless seeming crucifixion. So that in his resurrection, he could secure and establish for each of you in Christ a hope which can not falter. For if he has risen, we have this hope that we will rise as well. Now you too have this hope, or to borrow the language of the Heidelberg Catechism, you now have this comfort that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong fully unto my faithful Savior, our Jesus Christ who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins, who has delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me now that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit he assures me, he gives me hope, certainty of eternal life, and makes me willing and ready to live unto him. Do you have this? There's only two people in this room. Only two people in the world. Either those who were enemies of God or those who are enemies with God. There are those who have hope and those who don't have hope. Those who have peace and those who don't have peace. Those who have access and those who don't have access. Do you have this? If not, I can assure you, you're only going to find it one place. You're only going to find one source where you can find these joys. Christ and namely the justification which he freely gives to those who would place their faith on him. But for my brothers and sisters, I leave you with this. You have this assurance. You have this confidence, this certainty, this anchor for your soul. That not only have you been justified, but you now 
for the rest of your days until Christ returns again. You now have peace with God, access to God, and hope in God in the life which is to come. Would you join me as we go to prayer now? Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace, your undeserved gifts that you bestow upon us. We would gather to worship if you had stopped at justification, but you didn't. You give us even now these these added benefits, these joys. We pray that we would do exactly that, that we would rejoice in them. I pray for the brother or sister here this morning who struggles. Father, that this would be this would be ointment for their hearts, ointment for their souls. Father, I pray for the one who struggles with hope, struggles with feelings of being distant, struggles with lack of peace, that you would give them that peace which surpasses understanding. Father, I pray for each of us that as Paul used this to springboard this morning, that we would use it to springboard into a productive week, fueled up and ready to go, to go about doing our work, and to go about doing your work for your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.